You're listening to a DM podcast. And we're on the tarmac and I'm standing there looking to the east and watching this storm roll in. I can hear it and it's just the, the thunder sounded like artillery coming over the horizon and the lightning. There would have been probably 30 or 40 flashes of lightning a minute. And then I'm looking to the west and hoping I can see the lights of the plane coming the other way because I knew this was going to be a race between the two. The Central North Station in the Charles Air Flight on 458 King Air. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big company? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. a lovely chat with Trevor Chappell on ABC Radio Overnights a few months ago. We were talking about the Flying Doctor podcast, the history of the RFDS and much more. And after that radio conversation, I was contacted by Jason, who had listened to our late night radio chat. Jason works in Orange at a mine which is the world's largest underground gold and copper mine. And his role is managing and maintaining automated equipment that runs underground within the mine. It's an interesting topic and it shows how technology has advanced so significantly over time and how very high-risk occupations, such as mining, have been influenced by such technologies. If you have any question about the hours that teenagers and young adults spend gaming these days, you can be reassured that those gaming skills do have a place in the workforce. And Jason's job is a great example in that regard. But Jason also has a story to share from back in 2008, when he and his wife were working in the Northern Territory. They had a toddler who had a medical emergency and was unable to breathe. I'm really thankful that Jason is willing to share this story with us. Let's dive in. Hello, Jason. Hi, Lana. How are you? I'm really good. Now, first, how did you happen to be listening to ABC Overnights? Do you do night shift? No, I start pretty early in the morning and uh, when I start the car in the morning, the ABC comes on and uh, I usually listen to, to Trevor Chapel and Overnights on the way to work. It's a 25-minute drive, so I get to listen to some of it, and it was just uh, lucky that uh, your piece was on when I was driving uh, to work. Well, it's very fortuitous for the two of us now to be chatting. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about your fascinating career? Because you started in the Navy, is that right? I did. I didn't do too well in high school. Um, I didn't have very many options when I left high school. And the Navy seemed like a a good choice at the time. I don't know why. I didn't have a fascination with the sea. Uh, No one in the family was in the Navy. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, So I joined the Navy, did my time there uh, and left in the mid 90s. And I ended up working for the Queensland Police as an unsworn officer after that in the Triple O call centre, of all things. 
So you, you had two jobs when you were in, in the Triple O call centre, and that was uh, manning the police radio. So they had many, many radio channels there for the Queensland Police uh, in, in Brisbane. And then for the other half of your shift, you'd jump on the Triple O uh, call lines and you'd take the Triple O calls. So um, I did that for a couple of years. Uh, I then went to Brisbane Air Traffic Control. I've always had an interest in aviation. Um, I originally wanted to apply uh, to the Navy as a, as a helicopter pilot, but, you know, as I said, I didn't do too well in year 12. So um, they didn't take a very hard look at me. So I always had an interest in aviation and uh, I joined the, the um, air traffic control at, at Brisbane and, and worked there for a couple of years. Uh, and then I thought it might be time to, uh, to branch out and get some serious skills. So I did a, a short IT degree and I picked up a, a job working for a company that had software that mining companies used. And that sort of got me interested into mining. It was my first foray into mining. I never really had any plans to go into mining, but this company, uh, because it was an IT company and they had a software product for mining, uh, I joined them and, and got to know a little bit about mining through their clients. And yeah, that's, that's how I sort of started in mining, but not quite in mining. Right. So what sort of technologies, because I understand that uh, mining as a, an industry has moved or has progressed so far over the decades to a point where jobs that used to require people to be underground and doing things that were quite dangerous and high risk are now managed through automated equipment or robot type um, technologies. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, automations come come about over the past, uh, well, in mining over the past uh, 15 to 20 years. It's been in other industries such as agriculture, and that's where a lot of it has come from for mining, is, is from autonomous uh, agricultural equipment. Um, but in mining, there's a couple of cases or a couple of reasons why you'd want to have autonomous equipment. Uh, for, some, for some mines, for some surface mines, it's to get greater productivity. Obviously, when a, when a person is operating equipment, there's certain times of the day or the shift uh, that that equipment may not be operating, so therefore it's, it's not making money. So to automate it means that you can keep the equipment running pretty well 24-7. The only time it needs to stop is for refueling or for the odd maintenance. Um, but when there's an operator on there, you know, the equipment's got to stop for them to have a break, for them to have lunch, for them to go to mm. the toilet, for meetings. So the productivity isn't as great uh, when you have someone on there versus someone not on the equipment. So that, that's one case. Where I work here, um, it's more around safety. Uh, we work at a, at a depth where there's um, a higher risk uh, for people to be operating at that depth. And so autonomous equipment uh, removes people from that, that risk. And, and that's another case uh, for automation is, is to remove people from uh, high risk work areas. So how deep are you? Uh, about 1.4 kilometres deep. Uh, is where the mining uh, occurs and, and we, we have a unique mining method here called block caving. Um, it's a difficult one to explain <laughs> on a podcast because you really need to see a, a diagram but if anyone uh, Googles block caving they'll find a, a heap of YouTube videos and diagrams out there but essentially uh, the, the ore is mined at 1.4 kilometres underground by autonomous equipment. They're still manned by people on the surface. Um, it's, it's not quite remote control. They do run around autonomously, but filling the bucket of the loaders is still done by people. That part of the technology is not quite there yet. It's coming and, it, and it's close, but a person still fills the bucket of the machine, then they press the button and it runs uh, to where it tips into the crusher and then that goes onto a conveyor belt and out it comes 
on the surface. Wow. And so what is your job specifically then in terms of running the equipment or running the automated systems? So I've got a couple of teams here. They're, um, they're all involved in technology. Um, so we're at the, the technology and innovation department. So I have a team here that look after the, the infrastructure that keeps that equipment running. So there's obviously Wi-Fi networks, there's fiber optic, there's equipment on board the, um, the loaders to keep it running. There's cameras, there's antennas, there's those sort of things. So we have people who maintain the infrastructure underground. Um, I then have the IT team here, which look after your typical IT infrastructure and services uh, on the surface and underground. And then I have another team that looks after the process control system that runs the plant. Um, which is where the ore is processed and, and uh, goes through a, a long process that gets gold at the other end, gold and copper at the other end. So it's a, it's a group of uh, three teams that, that look after technology and, and innovation. We're always looking at improving, uh, saving costs and, and improving safety where we can. Wow. What sort of accidents and injuries or even deaths are avoided by having this system these days? Oh, look, automation removes the need for people to be in high-risk areas. It removes the need for people to be around um, equipment. That's where a lot of injuries can occur. So the more we can remove people away from those environments, the, the safer it becomes. Um, so I'm in hard rock mining. Obviously, there's coal mining, which is a little bit different. There's a lot of people who work in close proximity to mining equipment in coal mining and, and um, that's where a lot of injuries occur. It's a lot tighter confined area in coal mining and they are having more and more autonomous equipment come in but it's a, it's a different environment uh, and there's a big risk with coal mining too around methane gas. So there's a lot of uh, protection around what technology and power sources you can have working around a coal mine and that somewhat limits some of the autonomous equipment in, in coal mining. But they're not far behind us, it's just a different environment. But mainly, look, safety's improved across mining over the years through technology, not just the technology that, that, that I deal with, but um, just general improvements and, and, and a greater awareness. An example, when I started with Rio Tinto up there in uh, Jabiru in the Northern Territory, my uniform was shorts and a short sleeve shirt. Now, they still had the reflective tape on it, but... <laughs> It was shorts and a short sleeve shirt, and it wasn't even high vis. It was khaki green, uh, so I looked more like a, a forest ranger than I did a mine worker, uh, and that was 20 years ago. So you can just see, in terms of uniforms uh, and personal protective equipment, it's really come a long way just in the last 20 years. Right. Now, there in Orange, what would be a regular workday for you? Like, what time of day would you start, and what sort of work would your day to day involve? I'm, I'm up uh, just a bit before four, much to my wife's displeasure. Um, I'm just, I'm a natural early riser in the morning. I think that actually stems from the military. Um, it's, it's ingrained from back then. Uh, I get up, I have a quick breakfast, shower, get dressed. Uh, I'm on the road at 4.30. I'm on site just before five. There can be a meeting at 5.30 in the morning um, with night shift people. Obviously there's night shift here, so I have um, people who are on night shift in the team. So you get to catch up with them. Otherwise, if you don't see them on night shift, given the roster they work, you may not see them for another four weeks. You've got to be flexible. And then the rest of the day is probably, you know, there's meetings, there's catching up with the team. Uh, there's a whole range of things. No two days look the same, uh, which, is, which is why I enjoy mining. There's always challenges. There's always problems. There's always things that need to be solved, sometimes quickly, uh, sometimes, you know, longer term. 
I don't have a lunch hour. I don't think many people in mining have a lunch hour. Some of the crews do. They have a dedicated lunch hour, but I normally eat lunch behind my computer, which is a bad habit. But um, <laughs> you, sometimes you can't help it. You get more work done that way. And then, you know, around four o'clock, I'm looking to leave uh, to go home, uh, unless there's something happening at the time, which obviously, you know, you hang around and, and sort that out. But it's normally around four o'clock. So, you know, pretty long day. Yeah, very long day. Jason, tell me, how did you come to meet and marry your wonderful wife, Julie? Uh, we, we met in Brisbane um, at an RSL uh, in, in, at Redcliffe, north of Brisbane. We just happened to be at the RSL at the same time and, and um, you know, hit it off with a, a conversation and, uh, and that's where it all started. Uh, she was working as a personal assistant for, um, you know, managing directors and, and CEOs of small companies. Uh, I was working uh, in, the, in the role I mentioned earlier. Yeah, soon after we met, uh, Julie fell pregnant and that's where we decided that uh, we'd, we'd had a, enough of the rat race in Brisbane, even though Brisbane is, is a large country town, really. It's, it's not much of a city, though it is now. We just felt, you know, we just wanted to, to, to move out into the, the country, somewhere a little bit more remote, somewhere away from the rat race. You know, have our child out there and have a bit more easier life. My mum and dad both came from out in Western Queensland. Um, they always talked about the, the the better life out in the country. And I, I was born in Brisbane, so I never really had that opportunity and thought, well, here we go. This might be the chance. So I had a look around and, and saw that the Rio Tinto were wanting a systems administrator, p- particularly with the skills of the software that I uh, had with the company I was working with at the time. And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. Saw that it was up in Jabiru, didn't quite know where it was. I had to look look for it myself. Realised it was up in the middle of Kakadu National Park, about uh, about three and a half hours east of Darwin. And um, I showed it to Julie and said, what do you think about this? And she said, sure, why not? Let's go for it. So um, went through the process, uh, had all the interviews, uh, got the role, and uh, Rio Tinto moved us up to, to Jabiru. And, uh, yeah, we turned up to, to Jabiru not really expecting to know much about the place. It's it's an interesting place, obviously, being in the middle of Kakadu. The town is typically or was typically built to service the mine. Um, all the houses look very, very similar. I think there's about five different designs and they just repeat each other around the whole town. The town was designed on um, the premise of Canberra. So there was a lake in the middle, um, a lot of long flowing streets, uh, only a few roundabouts, not as many as Canberra. <laughs> I live just outside Canberra, Jason. So I was going to say, how many roundabouts do they have? <laughs> I'm I'm going to say there was oh boy, and I could be wrong here. This is a long time ago. I think there might only be one or two. Right. Um, and even then, they they're not your, your proper roundabouts. They're probably more cul-de-sacs than than, than roundabouts. But the look of Jabiru was similar to to Canberra. Um, and right in the middle of it was the great big crocodile hotel, um, which when when seen from the air looks like a crocodile. So anyway, we turn, turned up to Jabiru. Uh, working for Rio Tinto, you get assigned a house. So we moved into the house. And I started working in my role there. And um, uh, Julie was obviously pregnant. We had to move into Darwin two weeks before she was due. That was what the, uh, the doctor said. Uh, anyone from Jabiru had to go into Darwin two weeks beforehand. Just simply the distance away. If anything were to happen or she were to you know, deliver early, 
they just wouldn't be able to get it to, to Darwin in time. So he said, right, I want you in Darwin two weeks early. Thankfully, Rio Tinto had an office in Darwin, so I was able to work out of that office. How did Julie cope with moving from Brisbane, which is a fairly substantive metropolitan city, uh, to being in this very, very small township in the Northern Territory in the middle of a national park, pregnant, away from family and friends. I mean, that's a fairly big culture shock, I would say. So how was she coping with that? Uh, look, she coped very well. Her dad was in the army for 22 years, so she moved quite often with him. So I think that the moving part in acclimatising to new towns or new areas wasn't difficult for her. Yeah. So look, it was an adventure, obviously. It was exciting. I was in mining. You know, things were good. Obviously, every now and then, you know, you wish you had parents around. But no, it wasn't as bad as some people might be thinking. Look, there was good support, a lot of good friends there. We lived next to, next to um, a family that were really, really good and we were we were close. We used to um, go over for dinner, you know, on weekends and it was a tight community so you didn't feel like you were missing out on anything. And look, Darwin was only three and a half hours away but mm. that, that made it a good weekend trip. You'd have to go in early Saturday morning, stay Saturday night and then drive back out on Sunday. So you still had that, that touch with the larger, larger metropolitan area but you know, Darwin wasn't that big either. I believe it's changed a lot now, but she coped very well. We both did. We, we enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. That's fabulous. So was her pregnancy um, all good? No complications? Yeah, all good. No, it was all good. We had the regular visits into Darwin, nothing untoward, no concerns. The only little hiccup was is as it was coming to delivery day, uh, Cyclone Ingrid decided to head towards Darwin. Thankfully, the hotel we were in was actually a, uh, a cyclone-proof uh, hotel, so we were right to stay there. But because it was heading and we had a couple of days' notice, we had to go and meet with the doctor and work out uh, the, the what-if scenarios. What happens if she goes into labour and obviously ambulances just can't run to the hospital in the middle of a cyclone? Thankfully, Cyclone Ingrid um, turned a little bit away from Darwin. I think the closest it came was about 50 kilometres, but it was still pretty wild. Um, you know, there were palm trees bending over and it was it was pretty hairy. And then it passed and then and then thankfully Julie's delivery day came. Um, we went to the hospital. It was all very clinical, I must admit. The doctor came up, uh, her waters were broken. The doctor looked at his watch and said, I'll see you at four o'clock. And I'm thinking, how does he know four o'clock? <laughs> and sure enough, you know, a bit before four, she started to, um, she started to give birth and... Uh, the, the nurse and myself um, helped deliver the baby uh, to the point where she had to ring for the doctor. Obviously, there's got to be a doctor there to to uh, make sure everything's okay. Um, so the doctor came up because his, his uh, rooms were below, um, delivered the baby, did all his tests and, and disappeared again and was gone. It was like that was it. It was all over. And here we were with a, a newborn. And, um, yeah, I, I'd read so many – we both read stories beforehand. And I think we'd read all the – the worst case scenario stories and the whole day well in my view it was very very clinical uh, just about to the minute but uh, that's obviously you know when you're a doctor and you've got that experience you know exactly how it's going to go so yeah it was good so jason how did it feel to hold your new son harrison for the first time it was it was a, a great feeling it was also you know there was a, there was shock and and it was just like boy this has happened so quick you know you know the, the nine months leading up to it you go through all the the trimesters and the process and you know it's coming but then obviously on the day um it, it's a shock like wow it's here and look it was great he was a great little baby he um 
there was no issues. We had to stay in Darwin. Look, I think it was three to four days, maybe five days before we could go back to Jabiru. They obviously like to be a little bit overcautious, uh, given you're going to head back that far away. So we had a room there at the, the hospital, which was great. I think we were there for about three days and the nurse said, do you guys want to go to the local shopping centre and just have a breather? And um, <laughs> it was it was a strange feeling. And the nurse said, look, we'll look after Harrison. So we we went to the local shopping centre there and we just sat there and looked at each other and went, this this doesn't feel right. We can't we couldn't relax. We couldn't calm down. We were just like, right, we better go back to the hospital. So <laughs> it was the start of a very long process of uh, always thinking about Harrison and and always being with him. So um, we took him back to Jabiru and yeah, away we went. Wow. Now, Jabiru has a population, I think, of just over a thousand. Is that right? Somewhere around there? Yeah, it was somewhere around 900 to a thousand. It, it fluctuates and majority of the population is for the mine. And then there's also um, obviously people who, who work in the town for the small businesses that are there. Mm. And then also uh, Parks and Wildlife have a lot of people in town. Is there a local hospital? No, there's no hospital in Jabiru. There's a clinic. It's obviously got um, equipment there for uh, treating trauma patients and stabilising patients before they, they get transported to Darwin. But, but no, it's certainly not a hospital. So you and Julie are back in Jabiru and you've got the wonderful newborn Harrison there with you and life goes on and you're new parents and you're enjoying and loving that journey, I'm sure. At what point did... Um, you have a big scare with Harrison as a toddler. So Julie went back to um, to work a little bit part-time and uh, we put Harrison into childcare. Oh, look, it was probably from the age of two, two and a half, just a couple of hours a day. And it was just one month shy of his uh, third birthday, so February 2008. Um, Julie picked him up from childcare and just noticed he had raspy breathing or, or laboured breathing, a bit like when you've got a... Uh, a sore throat or a cold, you can hear it's a bit raspy. And she took him home and it, it just didn't sound right to her and was getting worse. So she thought, I better go to the clinic. And this would have been around early to mid afternoon. She went to the clinic. She went into the waiting room. There must have been another patient in with the, uh, the doctor at the time. And she was sitting uh, in the waiting room. I believe someone else came in as well. So there was a few people in the waiting room. The doctor came out to um, to grab the patient before her and saw Harrison and heard Harrison and the noise that uh, he was making when when breathing. And he also had a bit of a funny colour about him as well, or not a, not a normal colour, which I think the doctor must have picked up on. So the doctor actually grabbed Harrison and Julie first and, and took him in. It was then that she felt that uh, this is the doctor felt that there was definitely something uh, wrong there, and he was starting to have that blue tinge around the the lips which is obviously an indication that there's, there's an issue with oxygen. And I think it was about this point, Julie must have rung me um, out at the mine, which is only about 15, 18 minutes away. So I was able to get into the clinic pretty quick. When I got there, the doctor was trying to give Harrison uh, oxygen through a mask, but they're also mixing adrenaline with it. And the mask was making that, um, that hissing noise and he was just pushing it away. He was crying, he was screaming. He didn't like the hissing noise of the mask. Uh, and so they just couldn't get the mask onto him. So they couldn't give him the oxygen. And there was also adrenaline um, in there. The doctor was obviously, she was quite new. I think she was either in the end of her, her training or had just finished her, her training. So she was quite new, didn't quite know what to do. Um, so was on the phone to Darwin pretty quick. I think they had a speed dial back to Darwin. 
So she was on the phone relaying the information and the condition of Harrison to the doctor at Darwin. And the doctor there was obviously giving advice. So she would come back and she would do what the doctor suggested. And if it, and it, it, if it didn't work, she'd go back to the phone. And it was at that point uh, the doctor obviously suggested giving Harrison uh, adrenaline via uh, an injection. So they did that. Obviously, that takes some while to have an effect. Uh, and the doctor at, at Darwin General decided, I think we need to get the flying doctor out there, particularly when it's a young child. Um, didn't obviously want to wait around to see if that adrenaline worked or not. Jason, did they have any idea what was happening? So suddenly, you know, from daycare where Harrison, you know, is not looking great to suddenly, you know, having to do these major interventions with a young child, what did they, what, what was their diagnosis? What were they thinking was the problem? I, I don't think they really knew. I suppose the, 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 the new doctor there obviously was something to do with breathing or lungs. I don't think they were willing to put their finger on what it was. They were just going through the list of, you know, how do we triage this and how do we, we stabilise him and then let, you know, Darwin General sort out what the actual issue might be once they've got all the, um, the people and the equipment there. So it was more just getting him breathing, plus getting the colour back in his face and, and removing that blue tin. So they, they weren't talking about what it was. Mm. Look, she was, the, the doctor was, you know, quite flustered, obviously having to, to ring Darwin General as well. So they weren't willing to say what it was because I just don't think they, they knew. But what the doctor in, in Darwin General knew is that he needed to be in the hospital in, in, in Darwin to get the proper care and, and diagnosis. Right. And how are you and Julie coping? I mean, this is horrible. I mean, Jabiru <laughs> is a beautiful location, an amazing place to work, but when you suddenly got a critically ill toddler and and they can't breathe and you're just sitting there, were you both feeling really helpless or or just, you know, almost like spectators in a scene going wrong? Um, look, I think, yeah, obviously Julie was pretty flustered and, and upset and, and wondering what was going on. I spent, when I was with air traffic control in Brisbane, I'd spent two years on a rescue helicopter on the Sunshine Coast as a volunteer. So I got to go to a lot of life-threatening situations uh, with the rescue helicopter. And, and I suppose I, I learned from the doctors and nurses there that if someone is screaming madly and carrying on and yelling out, they're okay because they're still alive, they've got all the, the, their faculties, they're screaming. It's the ones who aren't making any noise that are lying on the ground injured that you've really got to worry about because they're the ones that have got some serious you know, issues, internal issues or head injuries and those sort of things. So on the back of my head, I'm thinking, right, okay, Harrison's crying, he's screaming. Yes, he's, he's got blue lips and he doesn't look that well, but he's still he's still making a lot of noise, so he's still got a lot of energy in him. So it can't be that bad. It's not obviously life-threatening at the moment, but I was also thinking it's probably not far away. Mm. Julie, obviously, you know, being her child and her son, you have a different focus on this. So I suppose I was a little bit calmer, whereas Julie was obviously frantic. And I think that the doctor being new as well and not knowing, sometimes when a doctor doesn't know, it makes you wonder whether they, do they know what it is or what it can't be. So you're starting to question whether they've got um, got an idea of what it is and how do you treat it. Mm. So it was good to hear that they'd called the flying doctor. Um, it turns out that the, the plane that they wanted was already en route to Alice Springs. In fact, it was about three quarters of the way to Alice Springs from Darwin. And so they had to reroute the plane from just north of Alice Springs back up to Jabiru. Now, I can't remember how long it was in flying time, but it was probably a good two and a half, probably three hours flight time that he had to turn around and come back to Jabiru. And in the meantime, uh, the local ambulance had come to the clinic. We'd all hopped in the ambulance to, uh, I'd take, sorry, Julian Harrison hopped in the ambulance. I grabbed my car. 
and we drove out to the airport to wait for the uh, the flying doctor. We, obviously, they remained at the clinic until they'd heard that the plane was a little bit closer, and then we went out to the airport, which is about 10 minutes out of town. By this time, it's starting to get dark, and as we're driving out to the airport, which is to the uh, the east of town, I could see a huge storm, one of those top-end thunderstorms coming from the east over Arnhem Land, oh, and, and no. they can be pretty powerful and you can you can, I, I could hear it as well and you could see the lightning off in the distance and I thought oh dear if this is heading our way and then we've got a plane coming the other way I wonder if it's going to be able to land so we get to the airport now it's dark uh, the lights are on the runway and they're not working too well it's an older sort of airport there's not much infrastructure out there and we're on the tarmac and Julian Harrison are in the back of the ambulance uh, I'm outside and I'm standing there looking to the east and watching this storm roll in, I could hear it. And it's just the, the thunder sounded like artillery coming over the horizon and the lightning. There would have been, oh, you know, probably 30 or 40 flashes of lightning a minute. And then I'm looking to the west and hoping I can see the lights of the plane coming the other way because I knew this was going to be a race between the two. Right. And I thought, boy, and I actually said to the, the ambulance driver, I said, if this plane can't land, what's the next thing? He said, well, we're going to have to drive him into Darwin which is, you know, three and a half hours in the ambulance. So finally I saw the lights of the plane coming in from the west, but this storm's also getting closer and closer. Um, and I could see that the plane was getting closer. The lights were growing larger. And the runway at Jabiru is not flat. It's, it's over a hill. So when you're on one end of the runway, you can't see the other end. And we were sort of down one end of the runway where the, uh, the hangars were. And all of a sudden, the, the plane just disappeared. Um, the lights went below the horizon, and I heard the engines gun up again, and I saw the plane come up, and he actually had to go around. He had a bit of a missed approach. Uh, obviously, uh, he didn't quite get the runway the first time, and he went around, and he came back in, and, and I could just hear when the, the, the wheels hit the tarmac, you'd hear the little squeal, and then I heard the reverse thrust, and finally saw that it was on ground. The plane taxied up to where we were on the tarmac, um, the stairs came down at the back, uh, you know, the nurse got out, she started to do her thing with the ambulance driver and find out obviously what the situation is. And then the two pilots got out and uh, they both sort of walked over into my direction and one of them got his packet of cigarettes out of his top pocket and <laughs> grabbed a cigarette out and he lit it and you could tell he was a little bit flustered but I said that was a bit of a, a rough landing. He said, well, if we didn't touch down then, we would have had to turn around and go back to Darwin, he said, because we're just about out of fuel. So having having flown to Nellie Alice Springs and then back up to Jabiru, they were right on the limit of their fuel. And there was no refueling at Jabiru, so they couldn't refuel. So they would have only just had enough to go get back to Darwin. So they did their thing. They loaded Harrison and Julie onto the plane. Um, I stayed behind just simply because of the weight. Plus also we needed a car in, in, in Darwin to be able to eventually come back to Jabiru. Um, so I stayed uh, at home in Jabiru that night, um, packed a bag for, for Julie and Harrison and myself, uh, and then got up early in the morning and, and, and drove into Darwin. Wow. Now, did that storm hit with the, with the vengeance? It did. It did. And look, it was probably half an hour after the plane took off. It, it certainly, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of minutes. It was probably half an hour, but it just looked that close. And those storms are so unpredictable and they're pretty violent up there in the top end. Yeah. Uh, particularly around February in, 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 in the year because it's the, it's the summer season. So it, it did hit after they'd gone and, and they'd made it safely to Darwin. And um, obviously Julie was sending me messages when they landed and they were up straight to the hospital. And um, 
I knew I had to get some sleep to be able to drive in, so I, I had to uh, sort of put that aside and knew that they were in the hospital and they were in the, the, the hands of the, the staff there. So um, I got some sleep and uh, left early in the morning to head into Darwin. And your last messages from Julie that evening, was Harrison stabilised? Were they still worried about him or was he still in danger? No, I think the worry had dropped a bit. He Obviously, being on the plane, there was a bit of equipment on there. He, he certainly stabilised, so I think the adrenaline had probably um, worked and he his breathing was back to normal, even though it was still very raspy, but at least his breathing rate was back to normal. So obviously, you know, Julie was still concerned because, you know, here you are on a plane flying into Darwin. There was still, there was obviously something wrong or else you wouldn't go to this effort. Yeah. Um, but I, I think in terms of things from a couple of hours prior, he had stabilised and got slightly better. So the, I think the adrenaline definitely worked, yeah. That's great. Now, once he got into the hospital and they had a chance to have a look at him, did they give a, an official diagnosis about what they felt had occurred or what was going on? They called it croup. And I'd never heard of croup before. Uh, look, I think it's a term they used many, many, many years ago, but it's it was just difficulty with breathing. I don't know whether it's a virus or whether it was something he picked up at, at, at daycare, whether someone else, you know, one of the other children there had it and he'd picked it up. Um, but to me, it, you know, it sounded like a really bad, really bad cold. Mm. Um, but they called it croup. Right. Um, so they gave some... They gave some medication. Um, obviously, I'd return, I, I turned up at the hospital the next morning. Uh, he was much better. He was just hungry. Uh, he hadn't been able to eat anything. Julie rem- reminded me on, on the weekend when we were talking about this that outside through the window of the room, uh, the nurses had a bowl of fruit on, on, the, on the nurses' station there. And all Harrison said is, I just want a nana. I just want a nana. Um, so obviously you could tell straight away when he wants to eat, everything was okay. So yeah. the, the medication they'd given overnight uh, obviously did the job. Still had a bit of a raspy in the throat, but the breathing was fine. Well, croup is a condition that's caused by a viral infection. The virus leads to swelling of the voice box, the larynx, and the windpipe, the trachea. And this swelling can make the airway itself narrower and so that it's harder to breathe. And children with croup develop this really harsh, almost barking cough, which you're sort of describing, and a noisy high-pitched sound when they breathe in, that whistly kind of noise, very scary. Um, It can impact children uh, from as young as six months all the way up to five years old, and sometimes it can, uh, because it's a viral condition, it can actually come back uh, some children get croup several times. But the key thing with croup is that it can get worse really quickly. And so um, it's really good that Julie did what she did because by making sure that she got Harrison and herself straight to the clinic when she could tell something wasn't right, they're able to take those interventions and make sure it doesn't get worse. Um, it certainly is not a condition to um, ignore if, uh, if no. your child gets it. And, and, and what you've just described, those sounds, is exactly what he had. The whistling, mm. uh, obviously the tightening of the voice box makes everything sound. It, it just sounds very, very bad and obviously it restricts the airway and that whistling is definitely what I remember. Every time he breathed in, it was that whistling noise. It, it was mm. like he had a whistle stuck in his throat. Mm. Yeah, well, quite yeah. scary. Yeah. Yes. So how, Julie's a bit of a heroic 
mother, I've got to say. So how was she coping through all of this once Harrison settled down and was asking for a banana? Was she, um, you know, stress levels coming down and feeling a bit better about it? Yeah, look, she was definitely much more relieved. Obviously, you're in the hospital. There's, there's care just around the corner. Um, she was, yeah, she was much, much better uh, the next morning when I was there. In fact, you know, when I got there, it was sort of like you really wondered what all the, the fuss was about the, the, the night before. But the other thing we remember too is the the Perth Wildcats basketball team was in the hospital visiting all the kids and uh, they came in and saw Harrison and, and he, they gave him a, a cap and we've still got that cap to this day. So, look, he was back to himself, albeit with the, the raspy throat, but uh, I think Julie had, uh, she'd had an eventful night, probably not a lot of sleep in the hospital, so she was tired. Um, but we, um, we we packed up the car and, and came back home, I think, that afternoon. Did you end up living in Jabiru for a long time? We are in Jabiru uh, four years in total. We loved it. We really did enjoy it. We had a lot of friends up there. We had a lot of Aboriginal friends up there as well too, and uh, we just enjoyed the lifestyle. It was the right time of our lives to be up there. Um, it was a great environment to have a young child just simply because of the the friends you had, you know, you're in this small little town, you had to get on with people and it was it was a very friendly town, particularly our neighbours. In between those four years, we, we actually went back to Brisbane, Rio Tinto asked me to go back to Brisbane for six months to start a new, uh, a new office down there um, and they moved us back to Brisbane and uh, we were there about three or four months and both of us one night sort of said, oh, we can't handle this rat race down here, I wish we could go back to Jabiru. At that point, it was never on the cards. They were never intending to return us back to Jabiru. It, we, were, we were in Brisbane for good. But during that six months, uh, the superintendent role up at the mine came up and I put my hand up and said, we'll go back. And they sort of looked at me and said, you will? You really want to go back? And we said, yes, we do. <laughs> we do want to go back. So we were lucky enough we were able to go back the second time. And that, that's actually when... Um, the incident with Harrison occurred was our second time in Jabiru. Mm. So we no, we enjoyed it. We loved it. Great part of the world, you know, with, with Kakadu and and all it's got to show. It's it's yeah, it's a great place. How old is Harrison now? Harrison's eighteen. He turned eighteen in March, so he's um, he's getting close to finishing high school now. He's only got a couple more weeks of actual high school. Then he sits his um, you know his HSC and his and, and, and gets an ATAR. So. Um, yeah, it's nearly all over for him in terms of schooling, but then it's only just beginning for university. Yeah. Is he going to work in the mines or do any of the similar jobs that that his dad does? He had the opportunity last year to come out here where I am and do a week's work experience. So up until that point, he was very keen to become a mining engineer like me. Uh, he came out here and did the week's work experience and something must have changed his mind. Now, I don't know whether it was the getting up at four o'clock in the morning. It could have been. That's not something that really aligns with a teenager's work life. <laughs> no, definitely not. I don't know whether it was the work day that aligned with mine because I drove him out here and also took him home because that was just the easiest option. So I don't really know what it was. But a couple of weeks later, he said, Dad, I think I might like to do civil engineering. <laughs> <laughs> a bit more civil. <laughs> I, I think it might be, yeah. I have teenagers and they're such night owls and getting up at four o'clock in the morning, it really just wouldn't, yeah, I, it's, I can't see teenagers jumping in for it very quickly. No, he's definitely a night owl. Um, he much prefers to be up later at night. Um, I'm in bed by eight every night because of the, the hours I get up in the morning. Um, he can still be up at 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock. Yeah. So I think it would have been a shock. And 
he probably thought, boy, if this is going to be my career going forward. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. The civil engineering is probably a lot more civil. Now, do you think, Jason, that your career, your really varied career, including the triple zero and working in um, medical evacuation services and do you think that all of that knowledge and experience helped you to stay calm in that sort of time of need when Harrison was really struggling? Yeah, look, I think it was the, you know, the, the military. Obviously, there was a lot of pressure when we were in the military in certain situations. And then um, particularly the triple O, there was a lot of training we did to learn to take triple O calls because taking a triple O call when something is desperate is happening can be quite traumatic for not only the person on the other end of the phone, but the person taking the call. Mm. So we actually did a lot of training to learn how to keep it calm um, and, and also on the police radio as well too. So there was a lot of things early on in life that you're in a lot of um, uh, high-pressure situations that we did various training for. And then when I was on the helicopter for two years, obviously going and, and, and seeing and doing some of these things firsthand, mm. um, you, you just had to learn to not so much switch off, but know that you're there to do something and not worry about what's going on, but just focus on what you need to do. And uh, as that, that doctor always said to me, if someone, if you're at a motor vehicle accident and someone's kicking and screaming and yelling, they're the last you go and look at because they're okay. They've got lung, air in their lungs, obviously. They're breathing. Uh, you can look at them last. It's the people who are not moving, not making a noise. And so Harrison was definitely um, in the former. And, and I, I just, I suppose I don't panic uh, because obviously when you panic, it makes others around you panic as well. That's so true. That's so true. Well, I'm really, really thankful that you were listening to uh, ABC Overnight so that we've had a chance to meet and for us to hear your story. Thank you so much for telling us what happened and about your incredible career and the work that you do. It's really inspiring. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. It's great. And I'll, uh, I'll look forward to listening to, uh, to the other podcasts and the other stories as well. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Mm-hmm.